This is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story. years, Australia's relationship with China has been stuck in what Guardian Australia's political editor Catherine Murphy calls a diplomatic deep freezer. The thing that sort of created the step change in the relationship initially was the uh, Australian government's decision to ban the Chinese company Huawei from the 5G rollout in Australia. But things really went south during the pandemic in 2020 when Scott Morrison, the then Prime Minister, called publicly for an investigation into the origins of COVID-19. In turn, China imposed punitive trade sanctions on Australian exports, crippling sections of our economy. And the rhetoric under former Prime Minister Scott Morrison ramped up. The Prime Minister... We've got another Manchurian... But now, Australia is entering a new phase of this relationship. Last week, Anthony Albanese embarked on the first trip to China by an Australian Prime Minister since 2016. So I think it has not served China's international interests, what's occurred with Australia. So from the Chinese perspective, the sort of telegraphing of this visit internationally is quite important to sending a signal that, oh, no, we're past all of that that kind of period. We're all open for business. We're all cuddly friends now. It's all going to be fab. Today, inside the diplomatic thaw with China. It's Monday, the 13th of November. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at borough.com slash ACAST. Welcome back, Murph. I imagine it feels surreal. You kind of witnessed history this week, really. You were there for the meeting between one of the world's most powerful men, Xi Jinping, and Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. They met on Monday. Can you set that scene for us? Yeah, well, state visits are big in any country always, uh, but certainly big. It was it was big in China that the Australia's Prime Minister was visiting the country. Uh, we had a bit of a slightly more low-key entry in Shanghai, but he was mobbed when he went out and about at a big trade expo in the city. Uh, when we got to Beijing, which is sort of the more formal part of the program, obviously, uh, he's met at the airport. There's a motorcade that speeds in through the city. Then we're into the sort of formal bit of the program. 
It was pretty amazing uh, because the meeting was held at the seat of Chinese power, which is the Great Hall of the People in downtown Beijing. It's a monumental place and it projects the sort of history of the Communist Party and hard power in China. Uh, so, yes, there was a ceremonial arrival to the Great Hall of the People, 144 troops, bayonets fixed, brass band playing the Australian national anthem. Yeah, it was quite the scene. So from what I understand of these types of meetings, Murph, there's kind of the public-facing things, there's the shaking of the hands, yep. and then there's the going away, the behind-the-closed doors where, you know, the really important stuff, I, I assume, happens. How did that play out? Yeah, basically, as a reporter, you're taken up and you are sort of held in a position outside the bilateral room. And we had some uh, minders from the Chinese Information Service who were uh, wrangling us for this particular meeting. So we saw the Prime Minister sweep in, uh, the Prime Minister and the Australian delegation swept into the room. We saw the Prime Minister engage informally with the President just sort of in the kind of margins of the room. They just sort of had an opening, a little tete-a-tete, she has a sort of interesting bearing. He has a facial expression which is, I think, deliberately hard to read. It's sort of superficially pleasant, but the sort of what's going on behind the sort of half smile is a bit hard to determine. But what was interesting when the Prime Minister first entered the room, because obviously everyone's a bit keyed up and nervous, it's a big moment, the uh, President sort of, uh, he went beyond the sort of half smile that he uses in public settings. They moved into the formalities of the bilateral. There's a very big table in a very big room that the delegations sweep around either side of the table. They sit down. President Xi described Anthony Albanese's visit to China as a highly significant moment. He mentioned Gough Whitlam's historic trip to meet Chairman Mao 50 years ago. Both sides have prepared remarks. The Chinese people will not forget Prime Minister Whitlam for digging the well for us. Now the China-Australia relationship has embarked on a right path of improvement and development. This is indeed a historic time for me. 50 years ago to this very day, Prime Minister Gough Whitlam was uh, here in China, the first Australian Prime Minister to visit. Then the journalists are bundled out of their quick sticks and then, as you say, Laura, the real discussion occurs and in this instance these two uh, spoke for just over an hour. We saw the Prime Minister then about an hour after the meeting had finished and he was relieved. Mm. You could see he was sort of visibly relieved that that obviously nothing had been broached in the meeting that would be very difficult for Australia to deal with. And he thought as a starting point that it had gone pretty smoothly and pretty successfully. Elsewhere on this trip, China's Premier Li Xiang made some comments about Albanese's physical appearance that sparked a lot of interest, particularly with Australian media. What happened? Uh, that was sort of one of the more surreal moments, I think, <laughs> in the trip. Uh, Premier Li is in the Chinese power structure is Anthony Albanese's counterpart. The Premier is the counterpart rather than the President, right? Mm. The Premier said to the Prime Minister that a clip 
of the Prime Minister walking along the Bund in Shanghai, which is a sort of major thoroughfare in Shanghai. The PM had gone out for an early morning walk. Uh, That had been captured on video by one of the travelling reporters, Will Glasgow, who works for the Oz, because he'd just been out having a run, basically, and he saw the Prime Minister. He thought, oh, my God, (laughs) that's the Prime Minister. Stopped. Look who it is, Prime Minister. Picked up his phone recorded him as he swept past on this walk. Albanese was wearing his Matilda's jersey, which he's sort of quite fond of these days. That video clip was then picked up on Chinese social media on WeChat and uh, Premier Lee said to Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, people are basically calling you a handsome boy. People were saying that uh, we have a handsome boy coming from Australia. I think by the Prime Minister's reaction, it's pretty safe to say he was a little flummoxed by handsome boy. I assume he took it as a compliment. I think so, but we we all did scratch our heads about it. It was certainly a bolt from the blue. Murph, China is Australia's biggest trading partner, and Albanese heading into this trip said that de-escalating this trade war with China will mean more Australian jobs. What inroads were made on trade between Australia and China on this trip? The sort of substantial shift happened in the lead-up to the trip, Laura, because obviously the the, the tariffs on barley were removed. Uh, When it comes to wine exports, Australian wine exports, the Chinese government has initiated an inquiry into some of the restrictions that were placed on Australian product at the height of the trade war. Uh, I think people regard this as a prelude to settling this issue, hopefully in the not too distant future. There's still a couple of remaining sanctions. On the trip, we raised these two specific issues of lobsters and and some meat exports. Uh, The Australian delegation walked away from the conversations with the view that there will be action on those fronts, hopefully in the not too distant future. And Albanese even made a point during the trade expert, I saw, of holding up a lobster for a photo of. Yep. Was that some not-so-subtle signalling there, Murph? Uh, not so subtle, Laura, no. When you've got a lobster in your hand and you're holding it aloft <laughs> in front of a camera, no, I think I think you're trying to make a point there, my yeah, love. This could be us. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And that was, a, that was interesting because a, a speech that the Prime Minister had made a little bit earlier to this trade expo before we went into this massive conference centre and the craziness in the conference centre. I think the Prime Minister did an interesting job of trying to very politely rebuke his hosts for this unilateral behaviour in terms of the punitive trade stuff. Every country has a role to play in advancing trade that is both sustainable and inclusive. It was very, very carefully threaded, the needle, bearing in mind that there are business people from around the world at that expo and the Chinese Premier sitting in the audience listening. There is, of course, also an important role for government to play in creating the right conditions for business to innovate and thrive and helping business take advantage of market opportunities. We do that by eliminating unnecessary barriers to trade and investment, by fostering a level playing field and by working towards inclusive economic growth. So the PM sort of made a point, I think, in the speech of just saying, delivering a message 
uh, to the Chinese government, well, look, if you want to get the relationship back on track, then create the conditions to get the economic relationship on track. China also had, you know, some interests to advance when it comes to trade. Specifically, I'm talking about a regional trade pact Uh that they would like to be involved in. What was discussed? Well, well, first of all, let's just say this this regional trade pact with the worst acronym ever. Mm. So this agreement that we're talking about is the CPTPP, which is the acronym. The full title of this trade agreement is the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, this is a regional trade pact. This is the short version. Uh, China would very much like Australia's support to join this regional trade pact. Uh, The sort of conditions of the regional trade pact is that everybody has to agree before they allow new members to come in. Uh, The signatories to this agreement have made it quite clear that they will not support China's entry Mm. into the agreement. So at one level, it doesn't matter what Australia does. Australia could support China and it would make no difference because obviously everyone's got to agree. We did have a level of anticipation on the trip that Australia may sound more supportive about China's entry into this agreement than they have done previously. Basically, what happened is that the Chinese president raised it, but in indirect terms during the the meeting with Albanese. So Australia's position remains essentially a holding one. Mm. But I would not be surprised, honestly, to see down the track Australia signalling support for China's entry or, or if not support, then at least neutrality about it. I wouldn't be surprised, but it didn't happen on this trip. Mm. Murph, I know this was lower down on the kind of register of interests for Albanese on the trip, but something that did come up was the issue of pandas. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Oh, oh goodness. That's the eternal why right there, Laura. No. Basically, the Prime Minister was asked, was he concerned that a couple of pandas resident in Australia may be returned to China? Pandas do get homesick. My understanding is that Uh, the discussions between Adelaide Zoo and uh, the Chinese uh, counterparts, the conservation organisation, are ongoing. Anyway, the Prime Minister uh, professed himself absolutely pro-panda, 100%. Let me just say this about pandas. I'm pro-panda. Let's be very clear. I think he landed with, I hope they can remain in Australia, delighting children at the Adelaide Zoo. But uh, yes, I would, on behalf of Australia's kids and families, I would like to see pandas maintain a presence in Australia. However, if the pandas are homesick, well, maybe they need to pop home for a bit. It was sort of high-stakes diplomacy, Laura, but I think we got there in the end. High-stakes panda diplomacy. (laughs) Next, the clash over Russia and China's motivations in opening the door. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Murph, a big sticking point is the imprisonment of an Australian citizen in China. How was that raised? That was most certainly raised. The Prime Minister made it clear before he departed Australia that he intended to raise the issue of human rights generally and also the case of Dr Yang, who is a a writer and a democracy activist who has been detained in China for almost five years. Uh, There was the detention of the Australian journalist Chiang Lei, who had been returned to Australia very welcome after a period of detention, I think, from memory, about three years. But Dr. Yang remains detained uh, in China. The Prime Minister raised that directly when we asked him what the response from the Chinese president had been. Uh, The Prime Minister declined to be specific about what the president had said. Mm. His case is a bit more complicated than the other one, uh, but nonetheless, that was certainly raised in the bilateral meeting with the president. Right. Another point of tension is China's support of Russia in the Ukraine war. A bunch of Western countries, including Australia, have appealed to China to use its influence to persuade Russia to end the war. Was Albanese able to apply further pressure on this trip? Yeah, well, interestingly, a couple of weeks, I think, before we all turned up in the Great Hall of the People, Vladimir Putin had turned up in the Great Hall of the People and there was much sort of pomp and ceremony around that bilateral visit and China and Russia have a special relationship, obviously, as you've said, Laura. In terms of how it was briefed to us afterwards, I don't know that the Prime Minister was, uh, you know, said explicitly how about Vladimir Putin. Uh, I think what the Prime Minister said in general was that they talked around instability in the international environment, the conflict in Ukraine, the conflict in the Middle East, and also uh, Albanese made the point to his host that regional stability is also tied up with both of those things and the sort of successful resolution of both of those conflicts. So uh, long-winded way of saying, yes, it came up, but indirectly. Mm. There were some key announcements about an increase in dialogue between the leaders going forward and also greater ease of movement between our two countries for everyday people or or for business people at least. Tell me about that. If you think about where we've been, which is in this situation where normal relations between our two countries have not really been there, and by normal I mean diplomatic relations, have been either strained or non-existent for, you know, five or more years the resumption of some of these uh, sort of events are actually very important. The Prime Minister's sort of primary objective in this diplomatic reset with China, apart from obviously preserving Australia's most important trading relationship, which gives a lot of income to the country, the other key objective the Prime Minister has is to be able to pick up the phone 
to the Chinese leadership, to the president and the premier and have his call taken. And those relationships are actually really important and fundamental. And so, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of dialogues that are now back on track and will occur annually. Mm. Also in that people-to-people sort of framework, there will be a new multi-entry visa offered for Australians and Chinese people, business people, students, others, so that people are able to come in and out of the country without too many impediments. And again, that's about sort of creating understanding in the sort of institutions of both countries about the thinking in both countries. Right. And piecing all of this together, I mean, the the advances made on trade, the kind of friendly statements that were said throughout the year, how different a place are we in? in terms of Australia's relationship with China. Is this a significant shift? It's a significant reset. There's no doubt about that. We were at a point where we were facing punitive sanctions on Australian exports and we were at a point where there was no dialogue. Now, we've sort of walked through that doorway, for want of a better term, right? So we've stabilised the trade stuff. We're back to a degree of diplomacy. But the reasons for that are are complex and, uh, you know, it's not just that Anthony Albanese is a genius. There was a desire on China's side to reset. That was a very fundamental part of this. But also the government set that up quite patiently and deliberately over the last 18 months. Um, So we're in a different place today. Whether we will still be in this different place in a month's time or six months' time is a completely open question at this point. Murph, I want to delve into that idea that you mentioned that this wasn't all just down to Albanese's genius plan and his strategising on this relationship. Mm -hmm. Many Australian commentators have suggested that the progress made at this meeting is actually a result of successive Australian governments staring down China's assertiveness of of a kind of strong-arm approach that Australia has taken in the past. What do you think of this idea? I think there's a certain amount of validity to that. Australia has come through a very significant test in our region over the last five years. Australia started to assert more more forcefully and more publicly and also legislatively the, the you know imperative of preserving our sovereignty and our security in a very dangerous time. China didn't like that. The retaliation was, sh- was sharp, protracted, and significant. Basically, the president, the regime in in Beijing has subjected Australia to a very overt, loud, noisy campaign of economic coercion over the last five years. I think in terms of our standing in the world and our standing in the region, it was very important that Australia asserted the values of, of liberalism throughout that period and asserted its right to sort of create a relationship with the regional superpower uh, on its own terms. So, yes, there is a connection to the sort of uh, refusal of Australia to submit to a campaign of, let's just be frank, Laura, bullying. I think that campaign uh, against Australia really backfired for China in the world And I think that's part of this. I think 
the whole sort of period of wolf warrior diplomacy, so this very assertive, aggressive rhetorical position in the world, I think basically made lights switch on in the capitals of the major powers around the world. I think the bullying that China inflicted on Australia actually woke up the Europeans, the Brits. Um, I think the United States was was fully aware of this because they are engaged in a full frontal strategic competition with Beijing. But what happened here actually influenced the play internationally and countries around the world started to adopt a much more hardline stance mm. against Beijing's use of soft power in their jurisdictions. So it's actually been quite important. Like, you know, Australia is not always important on the world stage, but I think this in this sort of sequence of events, we were mm. and we have helped sort of change the, the kind of international perceptions of China. Now, China has paid a price for the assertiveness in its diplomacy and people have, uh, you know, are much more reluctant, I think, to sort of engage with China at a substantial level as a consequence of what's happened in recent years. So getting back to where we started with the question, Laura, you know, was this Albanese strategic genius? Well, no, um, I don't want to... Uh, damn the government with faint praise because the amount of work that went into this reset is just astonishing mm. and it was very carefully calibrated and thought through at every point. But in terms of China wanting to re-engage with Australia, at the end it felt a bit like kicking on an open door. The very distinct impression, it was very obvious being there, bearing witness, looking at the atmospherics and looking about how the Chinese government orchestrated the, the events of the week, it was very obvious that China wants this moment to happen. Regardless of whether the success of this trip is all down to Albanese, uh, it will be seen as a success domestically. Will it provide a kind of political boost for Albanese and, and the Labor government? Well, it should because he's done something quite important here. But I think the thing is <laughs> it may not. I think if we think about the Australian voters at the moment uh, and we've been through the voice referendum, so we know how people are very, very preoccupied with their practical material circumstances at the moment, I think Australian voters will want to feel as though Australia's relationship with China is being managed with a degree of finesse and skill. I think they will want that that sort of to bank that in the back of their minds. Oh, yes, that's okay. I don't have to worry about that. But you don't also want to, if you're Anthony Albanese, look as though you're being too chummy with China, look as though you're rolling over on important things, that you're sort of, you know, opening yourself up to be a vassal state or whatever else. There's a fine line the Prime Minister's got to walk, I think. He's got a sort of tell Australian voters that this relationship's important for trade and for our regional security. And uh, obviously, normalising the relationship is a plus. I'm sure that's a plus for voters. But the tone of it is really important because, you know, people won't want to think that he's rolling over, basically. Right. Some in Australia have also critiqued the Prime Minister for heading out on this global whirlwind trip during a cost of living crisis. Is that really a valid critique? Murph, we do hear this a lot when leaders go overseas. 
Well, that's nonsense. That's nonsense. The Prime Minister is overseas a lot this year because the world is a very dangerous place. And the Prime Minister, I think, is very, very much attuned to trying to, as we said before, build relationships in the region and in the world to protect Australia's interests in some very difficult and complicated times. So, you know, just think about cost of living just quickly, right? Obviously, why isn't Anthony Albanese doing something about cost of living? Well, he is doing some things, first answer. Second answer, imagine what a war would do to cost of living, right? I don't want to say this in some alarming or hysterical way, but that's what is happening at the moment among decent democracies around the world. Leaders are very much attuned to trying to prevent conflict. That's what they're doing. I think the binary that gets created sometimes is about politics. It's not really about substance. You've said that the next phase of Australia-China relations will be something new. We're not going back to what it was like five, six years ago. We're embarking on a bit of a new phase. What will that phase look like and what are the the big tests ahead for this fragile kind of new bond? Yeah, and it is fragile. That's the right way to think about it, Laura, because there are a million things that could upset it. Uh, And you sort of start from first principles, the fact that we are two very different systems. There is an an authoritarian regime in power in Beijing. If you are present in Beijing, which I've been privileged enough to be, you know, in Beijing and Shanghai, the two biggest cities uh, in the country over the last few days, you are acutely aware of surveillance, pervasive surveillance everywhere you look, police, cameras, you name it. It's, It's oppressive. So China is that, Australia is not that. We are always going to have different objectives and the sort of trick in the relationship is managing the differences, I suppose, or not letting, as John Howard used to say, the differences sort of define the relationship. Now, what could go wrong, you ask me? Well, the answer to that question is any number of things. Uh, Shortly, Australia will release a new cybersecurity strategy for example. I think the Chinese government will be looking very carefully around the measures around that and the language that the Australian government uses in relation to that. There are any number of national security laws that could be adjusted over the coming years in order to safeguard Australia against espionage or, you know, or other incursions that are not in our national interest. Beijing will not be happy about that. There are any number of tensions on the high seas any day of the week you know, around the South China Sea, a contested area that could, you know, basically cause a backtrack in the reset that the Prime Minister and the and the Chinese President have sort of executed over the past few days. So South China Sea, always a flashpoint, always tricky. Taiwan, any number of things around Taiwan could set off a flashpoint. Like there are a million things that could upend this. Mm. So this is why we sort of have to say a number of things have to be simultaneously true here, Laura. It is true that we have embarked upon a stabilisation of the relationship, which is substantive. It's not just words. Substantive things have occurred here. Will it last? God knows. And both of those two things are true at the same time. They occupy the same level of space. We've done something big here. The reasons are complicated. Looking forward, will it work? Will it persist? Will it be resilient? Who knows? 
Murph, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. That was Catherine Murphy, Guardian Australia's political editor. You can read her coverage of the trip at theguardian.com. I particularly enjoyed her piece titled Albanese and Wong Evoke Whitlam in Bid to Defrost China Relationships, which explains why the legacy of Gough Whitlam loomed large on this trip. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe or follow Full Story wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Karishma Lusria and Alison Chan. Sound design by Daniel Simo. Theme music by Joe Koning. The executive producers are Miles Matignoni and Hannah Parks. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.